Historically, cities have been through crises and in the long arc of history, those crises have improved the quality of life of the cities, effectively transformed them. So the question about the COVID-19, is that going to see cities change a flight from the city? I would suggest that it has magnified, accelerated trends which were already apparent. And one can go through those trends. They're about mobility, they're about working patterns, they're about the role of industry and culture in the city. And really, if you develop this theme and you apply the lessons of history, then all the indications are that the city is going to be greener, cleaner, quieter, safer, more secure. But it does need some rethinking. The thing that is new is the attitude. As a result of the pandemic, having seen some of the spontaneous things that have happened, pedestrianization is not new, for example, but normally it would take years to achieve that. We're seeing that happen overnight in cities. We're seeing street widening in Soho in London. Entire roads are given over to terraces, to strolling. So uh, in, in a way, the dense European city, which is bikeable, walkable, uh, and ultimately more sustainable than cities that sprawl. The car is changing. It's moved to being the fossil fuel vehicle to the clean electric vehicle. It can charge en route. With artificial intelligence round the corner, it will platoon nose to tail. So traffic will be denser. The young don't have the same appetite for ownership. They embrace ride-sharing, the on-demand service of something like Uber, the rise of e-bikes, scooters, looking at new forms of mobility, ski gondolas, monorails, for example. Aerial mobility is on the horizon. So that will free up space the car park is probably an obsolete building. Maybe it's an urban farm of the future as water becomes more and more precious and through hydroponics you can get better yields. So the urban farm, the new version of the farmer's market could deliver fresh produce. Industry is also clean. So the idea of the so-called 15-minute city, the neighborhood where you can walk to work, you can walk to be entertained or entertain, to be educated, all within close proximity. That suggests the rebirth of the traditional European city, which is dense. But statistically, the infection rates have not been higher in those kinds of cities. It's the dense, cramped households. So in the move to a city which is more equal, then we need to rediscover what affordable housing is. As a student, cities were, in my past, commissioning some of the most radical, innovative and high-quality housing that was affordable. Maybe the market can address some of those issues, but maybe civic initiatives one of many could again improve the quality of life in the city. I think it's a combination of legislation, but it's also patronage. It's recognizing that cities and civic leaders, mayors, have the power to innovate and to create that kind of accommodation. Those could also be live research projects which deliver 
a higher level of sustainability, less embedded carbon in the production process of the building and the operating of those buildings. Remember that the combination of the mobility between buildings and buildings is accounting for more than 40% of global emissions. And you've also got the role of the livestock industry here. So what happens to agriculture? We've talked about urban farming. So all of these different aspects are all interconnected. So we need holistic thinking. And there's very, very powerful evidence from the past. I can think over six decades of my own personal experience as an urbanist first and an architect second. I've seen the power of leaders to be able to transform cities for the better. So it comes down to political leadership. Historically, the only constant is change in terms of cities. And cities have evolved through the technology that was available at the time. So if you take any city, take the Fire of London of 1666, it established the DNA of London, the Georgian city, brick construction, party walls. The same was true of cholera in the middle of the 19th century, it created modern sanitation. It also created the noble Thames Embankment, which is a wonderful heritage. So the history of cities, crises, the great smog of the 1950s, the way in which that made the switch from coal to gas. And so we're seeing the transfer from one form of energy to a cleaner form of energy and the way in which that can beautify, make the city healthier, greener, quieter, safer. So all these elements are linked together. But the lessons of history are optimistic and positive. We'll see an acceleration of change. We'll see new attitudes on behalf of the citizens because they have seen that transformation. But what it's doing is magnifying and speeding up trends that were already with us before. That's positive. I'd say that sustainability brings you closer to nature. By nature, we are linked to the changing seasons, to the outdoor world, to greenery, to landscape. So if that brings us closer to that, that's going to make us healthier, it's going to make us happier, it's going to be a better quality of life. I mean, some of the best cities have the best parks, access to avenues of trees, shade, um, wildlife. Uh, uh, so in, in that sense, I don't see a conflict between a green future and a quality of life. The two go hand in hand. It's not that you have to sacrifice one to have the other. The ultimately sustainable building is one that can be recycled and not destroyed and replaced. That's not in any way to undermine the validity of the new building. Of course, cities have to renew. So there is no reason the technology is available to be able to take this building and transform it, recycle it, bring it up to date with new internal systems. If I take the most sustainable building that's been created so far is the Bloomberg headquarters. Working with Mike Bloomberg there, Mike wants wood floors, but wood floors in a dense office building, you'd say it was a no-no. But by design, by the ceiling surfaces, which work acoustically, 
which cut the energy load, which give you better quality of lighting, all of those things are possible. So, uh, so the idea of being radical doesn't mean that you're going to be uncomfortable, quite the reverse. The idea is to improve the quality of light. And that is the most sustainable building that's been designed and built so far. It's also a very social building. It has the pantry, the circulation means that you have to go there before you go to the workplace. So it's very much about the encounter, about the creativity that comes out of that. And that building is naturally ventilated, so it saves energy and it's healthier. But then that's a kind of fringe building because uh, I can quote Steve Jobs and Apple, I can talk about an individual like Brian Roberts um, and the Comcast building in the same way as Bloomberg. Those have happened, they're kind of fringe buildings. Those are likely to become the new norm as people demand healthier buildings, and why not? I think that is the difference between then and now, and that is the ability of not just the technology of the building, but the technology of anticipation, design anticipation, so it is possible to use the computer technology to simulate the movement of air, to explore that, and to be far more predictive. Uh, that doesn't mean in the past the, the process of trial and error and the accumulation of knowledge. So it's important to, uh, in that sense, when you're designing, you're designing with an awareness of the past, the needs of the present, but you're also looking to a future which is unknown. And those buildings which have the longest life have been able to adapt to change. I can think of buildings that I've been involved with where typewriters were the norm, but those buildings have been able to adapt because they anticipated technological change. They had floors that you could wire through. Nobody was to know that the digital revolution would produce screens, but they were able to respond to it by design. It's not about how much money you spend, it's how wisely you spend it. Quality design is not harnessed to, to money. The creative element, that is what makes the difference. The two resources are really time and money, but the creative energy, that if you take this one engineer in South America who created wonderful architecture out of humble material brick, and I can't remember the exact quote, but the essence of it is extravagance is not related to quality. It's how you use the funds at your disposal. I think the significant thing about today is that the history of the United Nations, 75 years, League of Nations, today I think I would suggest is a turning point because it celebrated the importance of cities and city leaders and arguably the combination of cities, city leaders, industry, business, academia, has the power to confront climate change far more effectively than governments, which by their nature are slow. One aspect of this pandemic has been the extent to which we appreciate those who serve us. So if they are starting at four o'clock in the morning to be able to start leaving home to work at say eight o'clock with the long commute. The challenge is to create accommodation which levels that 
I mean, the exciting cities of the past were a real rich mix of right across all the spectrums of different professions, uh, society. We could rediscover that. And there's no reason why a civic initiative shouldn't be able to produce that level of accommodation alongside all the other kinds of activities that coexist in the dense uh, pedestrian-friendly city.